Chapter six of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Ale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Ale. Chapter six The Armada. Part three. Medina Sidonia had spent the Sunday writing pressing letters to the Prince of Parma and obtaining fresh water and other supplies from Calais. When the long summer twilight ended, the armada was still riding at anchor, the irregular lines of dark holes stretching for miles, with lanterns flickering at yardarm or poop and guard boats rowing about the outskirts of the floating city at midnight there was a cry of alarm passed from ship to ship the tide was running strong from the westward through the straits and sweeping along on its current came eight dark masses each defined in the night by a red flicker of fire that rose higher and spread wider as the english fire-ships came nearer and nearer three years before when parma was besieging antwerp the revolted netherlanders had attacked the bridge he had thrown across the river below the city by sending drifting down upon it a ship laden with powder barrels with a burning fuse and powder train to fire them and blocks of stone heaped over them to increase the force of the explosion the awful destruction caused by this floating volcano made the spaniards long after fearful of the attempt being repeated elsewhere and medina sidonia tells in his diary that when howard's fire-ships came drifting through the summer night off gravelin he and his captains thought that they were likely to be maquinas de minas contrivances of mines like the terrible floating mine of antwerp with this suspicion all idea of grappling them was abandoned as they drew nearer there was something like a panic in the armada the admiral signalled to weigh anchor and make sail but few of the ships waited for the tedious operation of getting the heavy anchors up to the catheads by slow hand labour on windlass or capstan and most of the galleons the carpenter's broad axe hacked through the cables and left the anchors deep in channel mud sails were hurriedly shaken out and like a startled flock of sheep the crowd of ships hurried away to the eastward along the coast in wild disorder mancada the admiral of the galleasses in the san lorenzo collided with the galleon san juan de sequila and the great galleas dismasted and with shattered oars drifted on a back eddy of the tide towards calais bar the fire-ships went aground here and there and burned harmlessly to the water's edge medina sidonia seeing the danger was over fired a gun as a signal for the fleet to anchor but most of the ships had cut their cables and had no spare anchors available on deck and they drifted along the coast some of them as far as dunkirk the sunrise on the monday morning showed the great fleet widely scattered only a few of the best ships being with the admiral makata's flagship had been left by the falling tide hard aground on calais bar the english attacked the stranded galleas and pinnaces and boats howard with some of the larger ships standing by to give the men comfort and countenance 
Some of the Spaniards escaped to the shore. The rest, headed by Moncada, made a brave stand against the boarders, who swarmed up her sides, led by one Richard Thompson of Ramsgate. Moncada was killed and the ship taken. The English pillaged her, but the hulk was abandoned and seized later by the French governor of Calais. During this fight on the bar, Medina Sidonia had reassembled about half his fleet, which he formed in a great crescent off Gravelin. The wind was from the west, and numbers of galleons were away to leeward. Some of them were in dire peril of driving ashore. Howard saw his advantage, and the whole English fleet bore down on the Spanish crescent. It was the nearest thing to a pitched battle in the whole Armada campaign. The English came on with wind and tide helping them, and with a confidence that was the outcome of their growing sense of superiority, ventured to close quarters with the tall Spaniards, while taking care never to give them a chance of grappling and boarding. As the fight went on, the Spaniards worked slowly towards the northeast, edging off the land, for their deep draft in the fate of Moncada's galleas made them anxious about the Flanders shoals. Howard and Hawkins led the English center, Drake and Frobisher the right, Seymour and Winter the left. Not a shot was fired till they were at musket range, and then the English guns roared out a well-sustained cannonade in which every shot told. It was the first of modern naval battles, the fights decided by gunfire, not by hand-to-hand -hand conflict on the decks. The Spaniards answered back with their lighter and more slowly served artillery, and with a crackle of musketry fire. Before noon the Spanish cannon were mostly silent for sheer lack of ammunition, and the galleons defended themselves only with musket and arquebus, while striving in vain to close and grapple with their enemies. Spars and rigging were badly cut up, shots between wind and water were letting the sea into the huge hulls. Just as the English thought the San Juan de Sicilia had been put out of action and would be their prize, the galleon heeled over and went to the bottom. Soon the fight was only sustained by the rearward ships, the rest trying to extricate themselves from the melee, not for any lack of courage, but because all their ammunition was gone, their decks were encumbered with wreckage from aloft, and the men were toiling at the pumps to keep them afloat. The English at last drew off from their persistent attacks on the rearward ships, only because after a hot cannonade of seven hours they were running short of ammunition. So they used the advantage of position and better seamanship and seaworthiness to break off from the battle, Howard hanging out the council flag from the ark as a signal to his leading captains to come on board and discuss the situation with him. Medina Sidonia, in his diary of the day, says nothing of the sinking of the San Juan de Sicilia, but he goes on to tell how the San Felipe and the San Mateo were seen drifting helplessly towards the shoals of the Zealand coast. How efforts were made to take off their crew, but these failed, for the sea was so high that nothing could be done, nor could the damage be repaired which the flagship had suffered from great shot, whereas she was in danger of being lost. 
This talk of rough seas shows that, brave though he undoubtedly was in battle, the Duke had the landsman exaggerated alarm at the choppy waves of the channel, and regarded as a gale and a storm what a sailor would call fine weather with a bit of a breeze. None of the English commanders thought that there was a high sea that summer afternoon. In the night it blew somewhat harder from the northwest, and as the early dawn came on, it could be seen that the armada was in a perilous position. The galleons, many of them with badly damaged spars and rigging, many more without anchors at their cat-heads ready to bring them up, were being forced nearer and nearer to the low sandy shores that were marked only by the white foam of the breakers, and the leadsmen were giving warnings that the keels were already dangerously near to the shelving bottom along the outlying fringe of the shoals. The English ships, with plenty of sea-room, looked on without closing in to attack. Little ammunition was left, and Howard and his captains were not going to waste good powder and shot on ships that seemed doomed to hopeless destruction. Some of Medina Sidonia's captains proposed that he should show the white flag and obtain the help of the English to tow the endangered vessels off the lee shore, but he refused to hear of such base surrender and told them he was prepared for death. He tells in his journal of the day how a sudden change of wind saved the fleet. The enemy held aloft, seeing that our armada must be lost. The pilots on board the flagship, men of experience of that coast, told the Duke at this time that it was not possible to save a single ship of the armada, for that with the wind as it was in the northwest, they must all needs go on the banks of Zealand, that God alone could prevent it. Being in this peril and without any remedy, God was pleased to change the wind to the west-southwest whereby the fleet stood towards the north without hurt to any ship. The deliverance was not quite as complete as the Duke supposed. Far astern the great San Mateo had grounded on the shoals between Ostad and Slyes. Next day three English ships came to take her, but the Spaniards, notwithstanding their helpless plight, made a desperate fight for two hours before they surrendered. Don Diego de Pimentel was in command, with several nobles among his officers and volunteers. These were spared for the sake of the ransom they might fetch, but no quarter was given to the common crowd. William Borles, one of the captains, wrote to Secretary Wallingsham, I was the means that the best sort were saved, and the rest were cast overboard and slayed at the entry. These Elizabethan sea-fighters were as cruel as they were brave. Other ships drifted ashore or found their way into ports along the low coast to the northeastward, but these were all taken by Prince Maurice of Nassau, Admiral of the United Provinces, who, with some thirty sails, gleaned up the wreckage of the armada, though he had taken no part in the fighting, only blockading Parma's flotilla as his share of the service. Meanwhile, saved by the shift of the wind, the main body of the armada was speeding into the North Sea, 
led by Medina Sidonia in the leaky San Martin. Howard and the English fleet held a parallel course, shepherding the enemy without closing in to fire a single shot. Howard was again, to use the phrase of the time, putting on a brag countenance, for he was in no condition for serious fighting, even against such crippled opponents. The magazines of the English fleet were all but empty, its cannon, demi-cannon, sakers, and fascinets doomed to useless silence, food and water short in supply, and much sickness among the tired crews, who were complaining that they were badly fed, and that the beer was undrinkable. In the evening Medina Sidonia held a council of war on board the San Martin. Soldiers and sailors, veterans of many wars, and the chief pilots of the fleet sat round his cabin table, and there was anxious debate. No one could say how long it would be before Parma's army was ready. Ammunition and provisions were short, men falling sick, ships badly damaged, though only a dozen had been actually lost. The wind was increasing from the south-southwest, and the pilots urged that the best course was to run up the North Sea, round the north of Scotland, reach the open Atlantic, and so return to Spain without further fighting. Some of the best of the officers, men who had been throughout in the thick of the fighting, protested against this course, to which their admiral was evidently inclined. Ricalde, Oquendo, and Leiva spoke for the brave minority. Most of the fleet was still safe, and Ricalde begged the duke to lie off and on till the wind blew fair for the channel again, and then risk another fight. Leva supported him and said that though his ship, the Rata Coronada, had been sorely battered, was leaking like a sieve, and had only thirty cartridges in her magazine, he would rather take her into action again and sink fighting than see the armada run away northward like a pack of cowards. But what seemed the easiest course prevailed. Medina Sidonia saved his conscience as a soldier by summing up the resolution of the council as the decision to sail northward, but turn back and fight if the wind and weather became favorable. So in the following days the armada sped northward before the southwest wind, which sometimes blew hard and raised a sea that increased the distress of the Spaniards. Howard followed with the English fleet, just keeping the armada in sight. If the Spanish admiral shortened sail to collect his rearward stragglers, Howard followed his example, making no attempt even to close and cut off the nearest ships. He was still reluctantly compelled by empty magazines and half-empty lockers to be content merely to put on a brag countenance. His shortness of supplies forced him at last to lose touch of the enemy. Off the Firth of Forth he abandoned the pursuit. When the English ships returned to their post, the captains were not at all sure what had become of the armada. Some thought it might have gone to the harbors of Norway and Denmark to winter and refit there and renew the attempt next spring. One sees in the letters of Secretary Walsington the uncertainty that prevailed among the Queen's councillors, and some disappointment that the victory was not more complete, though this was the result of himself and his colleagues leaving Howard so ill-supplied. 
On the same day, 8 August Old Style, Walsington writes to Lord Burghley, It is hard now to resolve what advice to give Her Majesty for disarming until it shall be known what has become of the Spanish fleet. And to the Lord Chancellor, I am sorry the Lord Admiral was forced to leave the prosecution of the enemy through the wants he sustained. Our half-doings doth breed dishonor, and leaveth the disease uncured. Meanwhile the armada had held its course to the northward, sometimes sighted far off from a Scottish headland. On 20 August, 10th Old Style, twelve days after the battle off Gravelin, it was passing between the Orkneys and Shetlands, heading for the Atlantic, helped by a change of wind which now blew from the east, filling the great sails, but chilling the southern sailors and soldiers to the bone. Though it was summer, the cold was like that of winter, and the bitter weather grew even worse as the galleon sailed on into the North Atlantic. The great ship straggled for miles over gray foam-flecked seas, under dull cloud-packed skies that sent down showers of sleety rain. Men huddled below in the crowded gun-decks, and in fore and stern castles, and there were days when only the pilots kept the deck, while gangs of men took their turn at the never-resting pumps. There were semi-starvation and fever in every ship. The chaplains were busy giving the last consolations of religion to dying men, and every day read the burial service over a row of canvas-shrouded dead, and committed them to the deep. The armada no longer held together. Small groups formed haphazard squadrons, keeping each other company, but many ships were isolated and ploughed their way along over the dreary sea. Many, despite hard work at the pumps, settled lower and lower in the water each day, and at last sank in the ocean, their fate unknown and unrecorded till, as the months went by, and there were no news of them, they were counted as hopelessly lost. Of others, the fate is known. In his sailing instructions, Medina Sidonia had been warned that he should take great heed lest you fall upon the island of Ireland, for fear of the harm that may happen to you on that coast, where, as a sixteenth-century sailor wrote, the ocean sea raiseth such a billow as can be hardly endured by the greatest ships. There was heavy weather in the ocean sea that August and September, but even so the galleons that steered well to the westward before shaping their course for Spain, and kept plenty of sea-room by never sighting the island of Ireland, succeeded in getting home, except where they were already so badly damaged and so leaky that they could not keep afloat. But along the coasts of Scotland and Ireland there was a succession of disasters for those who clung to, or were driven into, the landward waters. The first mishap occurred when the armada was rounding the north of Scotland. The Grand Griffin, the flagship of Juan Lopez de Medina, admiral of the Orcas, or storeships, drove on the rocks of Fair Isle, the solitary cliff-bound island in the channel between the Orkneys and Shetlands. Here such few as escaped the waves lived for some six weeks in great hunger and cold. 
Then a fishing boat took them to Amstruther in Fifeshire, where they surrendered to the Baileys. Lopez de Medina was among this handful of survivors. Melville, the Presbyterian minister of Anstruther, describes him as a very reverent man of big stature and grave and stout countenance, gray-haired and very humble-like, as he asked for quarter for himself and his comrades in misfortune. Other distressed ships fled from the Atlantic storms for shelter inside the Hebrides. The three entered the Sound of Mull, where one was wrecked near Lochaline, and the, and the second off Salem. The third, the great Gallius Florencia, went down in Tobermory Bay. The local fishermen still tell the traditional story of her arrival and shipwreck. She lies in deep water, half buried in the sand of the bottom, and enterprising divers are now busy with modern scientific appliances, trying to recover the pieces of eight in her war chest and the silver plate which, according to a dispatch of Walsingham's, was the dinner service for the grandee of Spain who commanded her. But it was on the shores of the island of Ireland that the most tragic disasters of the Armada took place. Its wrecks strewed the north and west coasts. Fitzwilliam, the deputy, or the viceroy in Dublin, and Bingham, the governor of Connacht, had taken precautions to prevent the Spaniards finding shelter, water, and food in the ports by reinforcing the western garrison. Bingham feared that the Irish might be friendly to the Spaniards, and industriously spread among the coast population tales that if they landed, the foreigners would massacre the old and carry the young away into slavery. The people of the ports, who had long traded with Spain, knew better, but some of the rude fisher-folk of the west coast perhaps believed the slander. Where shipwrecked crews fell into the hands of Bingham's men, no mercy was shown them. He marched four hundred prisoners into Galway, and his troops massacred them in cold blood, and then he reported that, having made a clean dispatch of them both within the town and in the country abroad, he rested Sunday all day, giving praise and thanks to God for Her Majesty's most happy success in that action, and our deliverance from such dangerous enemies. One of the Urcas came into Traley Bay in an almost sinking condition, with her crew reduced to twenty-three men, ill and half-starved and unable to work the ship. Sir Edward Denny, the governor of Traley Castle, was absent. The Spaniards surrendered to Lady Denny and her garrison. The men begged for their lives, and some said they had friends in Waterford who would pay ransom for them, but the lady had them all put to the sword, because there was no safe-keeping for them. In all, some twenty-five galleons were dashed to pieces under the giant cliff-walls of the Irish coast, or on outlying skerries and rocky headlands. In a few cases the Irish coast people helped the survivors, but too often they were as cruel as the English, and killed and plundered them. Sir George Carew wrote to the Queen, rejoicing that there was now blood between the Irish and the King of Spain. The government troops marched along the coasts, hunting for Spaniards. The Lord Deputy Fitzwilliam accompanied one of these parties, 
and told how in Sligo Bay he saw miles of wreckage, timber enough to build five of the greatest ships that I ever saw, besides mighty great boats, cables, and other cordage, and some such mass for bigness and length as I never saw any two could make the like. Fitzwilliam fairly reveled in the destruction of the Spaniards. He wrote to Secretary Walsingham, since it hath pleased God by his hand upon the rocks to drown the greater and better part of them, I will, with his favor, be his soldier for dispatching of those rags which yet remain. At last he got tired of this miserable kind of soldiering, and proclaimed mercy for all Spaniards in Ireland, who surrendered before 15 January, 1589. Numbers of ragged and starving men surrendered. Others had already been smuggled over to Scotland, still an independent country, where they were well treated and given transport to Spain. The gallant Alonso de Leyva, after escaping from the wreck of his good ship the Rata Coronado in Blacksod Bay, was steering from Scotland in one of the galleasses that had rescued him and his comrades, when the ship was driven by a storm against the wild cliffs of Dunley's Castle, near the Giant's Causeway. The galleas was shattered to matchwood, and Leva perished with all on board save five who swam ashore. In the last days of September the surviving ships of the Armada came straggling into the northern ports of Spain with starving, fever-stricken crews. Medina Sidonia had kept some fifty sail together till 18 September. He had resigned all active duties of command to his lieutenants, Flores and Fabadilla, for he was ill and broken in spirit. His hair had whitened and he looked like an old man, as he sat all day in the great cabin of the San Martin, with his head in his hands. A Biscay gale scattered the remnants of the Armada, and on 21 September the San Martin appeared alone off Santanger. The wind had fallen, her sails hung loose from the yards, and the long swell that followed the gale was driving the ship towards the rocks outside the port. Some boats went out and towed her in. Most of the crew was sick. Nearly two hundred had been buried at sea. Ricalde and Oquento brought their ships home, but landed broken with the hardships of the terrible voyage, and only survived it a few weeks. Every ship that arrived told of many buried at sea, and landed scores of dying and fever and scurvy-stricken men, so that all the northern ports were like great hospitals. When the last galleon had struggled into harbor, fifty-five great ships were still missing. The best of the leaders were dead. Not more than a third of the sailors and soldiers survived. It was a disaster from which Spain, as a naval power, never really recovered. For fifty years to come, the Spanish infantry still upheld their claim to be invincible on the battlefield, but the tall galleon had ceased to be the mistress of the seas. The campaign of the Armada is remarkable not only for inaugurating the modern period of naval war, the era of the sail and the gun, but also because, though it ended in disaster for one side and success for the other, there were from the first to last in a long series of engagements in the narrow seas no battle fought to a finish. 
In all the fighting, the English showed that they had grasped the essential idea of the new warfare, and proved themselves better sailors and better gunners, but the number of the ships they took or destroyed was insignificant. Howard was so crippled by the parsimonious mismanagement on the part of his government that he had to be content with half-doings, instead of decisive results. But there was worse mismanagement on the Spanish side, and this led first to failure, then to disaster. The story of the Armada is full of useful lessons, but for England its message for all time is that her true defense against invasion lies not in armies, but upon the sea. The Elizabethan captains knew well that if once Parma's veterans landed in Kent or Essex, the half-trained levies gathered by the beacon fires could do little to stop their onward march. So they took care to make the narrow seas an impassable barrier to the enemy by harassing the covering fleet and making it hopeless for Parma even to think of sending his transports to sea. The lesson is worth remembering even now. End of chapter 6